was going to say something. It, it's going to be after. I know the question she was going to ask. It's mm. good after. Okay. <clears throat> Hello and welcome to TT Time Theology. I'm Ivy Swinsky, and today's guest is the Reverend Patrick Campbell, and we will be talking about welcoming in the Episcopal Church. So, thank you so much for being here, Patrick. Is it okay if I call you Patrick? It is absolutely okay. I prefer it, in fact. Great! And uh, uh, thank you for asking me. Of course. Pleasure to be here. Uh, so let's start with your Bible quote. All right. So my Bible quote is from Paul's letter to the Galatians. And it's in the third chapter. As many of you as were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male and female. For all of you are one in Christ Jesus. Wow. Uh, <laughs> heavy hitter to start this. Uh, it's a heavy hitting topic. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, With theological warrant. Why that quote? So I think the heart of welcoming is the fact that our unity through baptism rests in Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. And Paul in this passage is saying that those powered relationships which divide us, which cause one group to have more power than another, mm -hmm. are, are done away with. They're torn down. Mm -hmm. There's no longer slave and free. There's no longer you know, one group that's favored over another, Jew and Gentile. And even constructions around masculinity, which are understood to be an either-or binary, is, are gone. There's no longer male and female. There's just one in Jesus Christ. And I think that is at the heart of our being able to be a church that welcomes. Because if we hold on to the power structures of the world, the way that the world labels people, gathers people, divides people, then it's going to be hard for us to be that to achieve that unity in Jesus and to be that community which truly is welcoming and seeing the full personhood of everyone who is part of the community. Yeah. Uh, so my secular quote is from one of my favorite bands. It's called Felix Hagen and the Family. They are, Great name. They're a British <laughs> glam rock. <laughs> <laughs> and the song is called Attention Seeker. And um, the quote specifically is, it's not a cry for help, it's just a cry for connection, and I trade my life to make people pay attention. Wow. Which I love. Um, and why do you love it? I love that idea of the only way to help people is to connect with them, um, which is what it reads to as me, for me, um, is that a lot of times we think of people who are making a lot of noise or doing that kind of thing as like oh they're asking for help or they're just trying to get attention and it's like no what it really is is this idea of connection and being rooted in that and i love that because i feel like we live in a culture which is so alienated where people there's so much focus on the individual many people don't feel they have communities where they belong and they're mm -hmm. known with people that they're in deep connection with. And so I think there are a lot of people who are longing for that kind of connection and community. Yeah. Um, 
so we're just gonna start by saying that this is a really broad topic and there are a thousand percent going to be stuff that we miss (laughs) um and i think that's just the nature of having such a broad topic which is really exciting and that if we miss something or are just like yeah this is a thing but like we don't have time to talk about it it's not making it less important or anything like that it's just we got like 45 minutes and we gotta do as much as we can in that um absolutely just like a little sorry beforehand (laughs) before we start so let's just like dig right in okay um one thing that i wanted to talk to you about um that we haven't really talked about in this series yet is the idea of who gets to be a priest we talked to jan about deacons but who gets to do that it's a lengthy process isn't it which some people might not realize it is although i feel like there are new models emerging but Mm -hmm. the traditional model is a lengthy process which involves several years of discernment which is listening for god's call and first listening within an individual's own being and seeing hmm, what's that thing that I hear from God? Is it a call to priesthood? And then that call needs to be validated and discerned by other people outside of the individual. And so that involves one's parish priest, eventually one's parish. Then there's discernment at the diocesan level, and that includes with the bishop, with the commission on ministry. So we're talking about usually several years before you even think about the training that comes or Mm -hmm. is necessary for being ordained as a priest. Mm -hmm. And then the traditional training is three years residential training in some seminary community somewhere um, in this country, usually. And then at the end of all of that would come ordination and then serving in a parish. Mm -hmm. So it is lengthy. And you had an interesting like road to ordination, right? Yes. Do you want me to share that? If, if you don't mind. I don't, if you don't mind. Want to, I don't okay. mind. I don't mind. <laughs> I assume you, you're meaning how long it took me yeah. to actually be ordained and yeah. why. Yeah. Well, we could take the whole time just on this topic. So the short <laughs> version is um, really since as long as I can remember, I felt called to priesthood. Mm-hmm. And that really became a strong sense of call in my college years Mm -hmm. but I was raised Roman Catholic and I was not a happy Roman Catholic and so um, I just knew not to do that in that tradition and found my way to the Episcopal Church and so in my early 20s began discernment with a parish and eventually with a bishop and was in fact admitted to the ordination process was just about to be named a postulant which is really the first formal part of the ordination process and was told by my bishop at the time to begin looking at which seminary I'd like to attend. Mm -hmm. But there was one problem. (laughs) They had never asked about my sexual orientation. They had, I learned later, had had questions about if I was gay, but they never asked me. I wasn't out to anyone, including myself. Mm -hmm. And I I was in a relationship at that time. And so Mm -hmm. I began plodding ahead and I thought, okay. As I slowly began to come out, I thought, I can't tell the truth yet because I'm in the ordination process. So then I get to seminary. I don't think I can tell the truth there. 
Then I get ordained, probably can't tell the truth there. I said, where does this end? And so I just decided I had to come out. Mm-hmm. And so I came out to my bishop, and it was a conversation where he went from one minute to saying, I'm so excited, I can't wait to ordain you, I think you're a very promising candidate. And then, moving on to, well, clearly you don't have a call to ordain ministry because you're gay. That's <laughs> Uh, it was intense. Yeah. It was intense. And then I went I went to seminary on my own knowing mm-hmm. I felt called, hoping someday I'd be ordained. And then it's a long story, but it took a it took two decades for me and the church to come to the place where this could happen. Mm-hmm. And so um, after that lengthy process I was ordained a priest in twenty twelve by Bishop Wolf. Mm-hmm. And I think part of that was healing for yourself. Um, (laughs) Well, it was. I mean, it it was several things. It was a sign to me of God's faithfulness. Uh It was a sign to me of how God's call won't be frustrated. And I think the thing I found most surprising is, you know, I didn't get ordained until I was 50 when I had been trying in my 20s. That's a long time. Yeah. And those years were not lost. Those have so informed my almost eight years of Mm -hmm. priestly ministry. And... The experience of being removed from postulancy, the experience of of really having a difficult journey to actually being ordained, I think has made me the kind of priest that I am. And I see in, in the work that I have in the parish, there are people who are coming to the parish who have been really hurt by the church, are trying to sort out, you know, where's the church begin and end and where's God? And has God done this awful thing to me? Or is it really just the church, but God still loves me? I mean, really big questions. And they're coming into the community I serve, and they're finding healing. Mm -hmm. And I think part of the reason that I'm able to accompany them in that healing is I've been through my own version of that story and wrestled with those questions. So I think it has uh, been healing in a way, and I think it also has made me, I think, a better priest than I would have been if I had been ordained at 30, as I was on track to be. Nothing about being ordained at 30, but for me, I just think I'm a very different priest being ordained at 50 than I would have 20 years ago. Definitely. Um, Do you think that there's sort of an exclusive process in becoming a priest? Is there, sorry, is there sort of this way where the process we have to becoming priests create barriers that don't need to be there for people who may actually be called to that? Well, I think the the traditional process does inherently have some potential barriers. Mm-hmm. One of them's language. If English is not your first language, it's going to be difficult to engage in traditional theological education. Another barrier is financial. It's not it's expensive to go to seminary and while there's help from usually from one's parish, some help from the diocese, it does not cover all the costs. And Mm -hmm. so there could be financial barriers. The other thing is for people who are not in a place in their life to go off and be a resident somewhere at a school out of state for three years because they've got a family to support, they have a job. I mean, that is also another potential barrier. And so I think for that reason, the church is trying to vision new ways of training people who will be ordained as priests. And so we're seeing seminaries that have distance learning. 
that have the ability to do some time residentially, but then spend other time doing online coursework. And also there's a provision in the canons for diocese to raise up people for local ministries to be ordained by the diocese, trained more locally, which then helps take away some of those barriers. Do you think that the people in the pew see themselves reflected in church leadership and in their priests? And I know it's a little different because priests are called by a parish, so that may be a little more um, of a forgiving process. Um, but but also, you're you're technically a priest in charge. No, no? I'm, a, I'm a rector. Congratulations. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> so been Have been years. For, <laughs> for several years, but, yeah. but I did start as priest in charge yes. and then was called to be rector. Yes. Yes. And I know that's like a whole other like world being called as a priest in charge or vicar versus going through the long process that a lot of churches go through to call rectors. Right? That is true. That yeah. is true. Yeah. Um, so back to my original question. Yes. Sorry. Um, <laughs> do you think that the people in the pews see themselves reflected in who is in charge of what we think of as the Episcopal Church today? Well, I think it depends on who you ask, mm -hmm. which person in the pew, and who their priest is. Mm. So, for example, in my case, um, the parish I serve, the Church of the Redeemer on Hope Street, we have a fair number of people from the LGBT community. And so for them to have me as their priest, yes, they do. And in fact, when I have even in preaching said from the pulpit, you know, I as a gay man, whatever mm -hmm. I might have said, I, mean, I have one man in tears once, an, an older man come up to me after the liturgy and say, I never thought I would live to have a gay priest preach as a gay man from the pulpit. Mm -hmm. He just never expected to hear sort of his identity, his experience mm -hmm. from that place. And so I think some, for some people that is true. I think for people of color in the Episcopal Church, many, if not most clergy, are white. Yeah. And so I, yeah. you know, I wonder what the experience is for them. Is there somehow the traditional way of calling a priest has created that sort of racial barrier that might not be the best way to explain this i don't know if it's created it i mean the reality is that the episcopal church right now is predominantly white mm -hmm. although there are there are some historical traditionally african-american congregations in the episcopal church including there were some in this diocese mm -hmm. but we are largely a white denomination, although we're seeing that changing. And in some parts of the church, we're seeing, you know, Latinx people coming into the Episcopal Church. And I think those changes are newer and we haven't yet, although dioceses are trying to raise up people for ordained ministry who more reflect the people in the pews. And I know that we've had work in this diocese, particularly in Central Falls and San Jorge and, um, I think we're in a place of transition. I think we're in a place of transition with how we train priests across the board because, for the reasons I already said. I mean, yeah. 
And an additional one is that historically, a newly ordained priest would be serving in a parish with a more experienced rector, and the training of the priest would be finished there, especially the kinds of hands-on hands -on things, the yeah. things that you do every day in parish ministry that you don't learn about in seminary. It's like a surgeon's residency. Well, you could compare it to that, sure. <laughs> like, you know, how do I baptize this baby? Yeah. Or, all right, someone just came to me and said this. How do you, with your you know experience and wisdom, O rector, you know, advise me to respond to this? Mm -hmm. Um, the trouble is most of those positions no longer exist. So people now come out of seminary and many of them can't get a position to have that. So I feel like the, the how we train priests is something that we are looking at and that is evolving and that is changing mm -hmm. because of the realities of who the Episcopal Church is and is becoming. Do you think the priest shortage that we are currently in has impacted representation in any sort of way? I don't know. That's I don't fair. know. <laughs> I mean, it's an interesting question, and I don't know. Great. Awesome. <laughs> we'll just pass that one. Well, I think it'd be interesting to find out about. Yeah. Would be. Um, so let's move a little bit away from, like, priesthood okay. and that sort of idea, because we want to look at the whole, the whole thing. Um, so let's talk about the service a little bit. Our... Do you think our services are inclusive to everyone? Define inclusive. What's your definition of inclusive? Well, I mean, I'm not sure what you're asking. <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean, by do you think that they are accessible to all types of people from the time that they are held to the standing, kneeling, sitting, that kind of thing? Just how... And even just how we worship today, should that shift to accommodate who are, the people are? Sort of what we're trying to do with this podcast, almost. Um, so those six questions, <laughs> if you want to All right, in no, particular order. in no particular order. <laughs> I don't know that we can be accessible to all people because... People are different and people mm -hmm. have different needs and people are looking for different things. And in a way, you know, I've been a priest for only, you know, not quite eight years. And so I don't have lots of experience in lots of places as a priest. I have lots of experience as a lay person in many parishes, but that's a different kind of experience. But what I can tell you is <laughs> the accessibility question makes me a little bit nervous. Okay. Um, because... I want, I want the church, I want the parish I serve to be welcoming so that when someone comes through that door, we can connect with them, they can be invited in, and I hope that they can have an experience of feeling like, yes, I'm welcome here if I, if I feel called to this community as a place for me. But at the same time, I don't want to lose the tradition that has been handed to us through the centuries. And, you know, we have a very particular Anglican identity and mm -hmm. Anglican history, and that is rooted in the practices of the centuries before. It's rooted in the practices of the early church. And my experience is we can do both those things mm -hmm. without having to get, a, get, you know, give up or change in dramatic ways the tradition and replace it with newer things. And I'm not saying that we don't change. I'm not saying we don't update. I don't, I'm not saying that new things aren't brought in. But I don't want to lose the, the rootedness in the tradition. Mm 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, my experience in the parish I serve is that people of all ages are connecting with the liturgy. And, you know, I watch the toddlers as um, it happened a, a few weeks ago when in the middle of the Eucharistic prayer, I say the word sacrifice and a two-year-old says back, sacrifice. Mm. I, at the fraction, break the host. And he says, broke. Mm. Totally connected, totally paying attention to what's happening. And he's not the only toddler that I have seen do that in my experience as a priest. And so that says to me, at some level, the liturgy is, is, connect, you know, is, able, is a place where he can connect and where something is happening for him. Mm-hmm. And so that says to me, he has a place, he's able to worship, and, that, and we have just you know, traditional liturgy in the parish I serve. Yeah. And you, you also do Taze services. We do. Once right? a month, we have a Taze on Sunday afternoon at 5 o'clock. Can you explain what that is for someone who might not know? I can. <laughs> uh, maybe we should sing some. <laughs> uh, so, oh, sorry, it was a joke. It's okay. You're still funny. <laughs> oh, thank you. So, Taze is an interfaith community in France that was founded after World War II, and their mission is reconciliation. And in fact, the church is called the Church of the Reconciliation. And Brother Roger was the founder, and he was looking for a monastic experience for men who were not Roman Catholic. They were largely Protestants. And they settled in the village of Taze, and they had a little church there, and people kept flocking to them. And of course, the monastic uh, rule says you welcome people when they come to you. And by the 60s, young people were flocking in great numbers. And so in the name of welcome, which I think relates to our topic, and the yeah. question you just asked me, interestingly, uh, they stopped singing the complicated chants of a monastic community and developed a way of chanting, which is very accessible. A lot of the chants are written in Latin because no one speaks Latin, so it's no one group's language. And people mm-hmm. are coming from all over the world with all different languages that they speak. Mm-hmm. And so they develop these ways of chanting, and their worship is all of these chants with some scripture and some prayers, some silence. They have a church, Talk About Welcome, which can accommodate just a few hundred people. And then if they need it, they have these walls that can be raised to expand the space so they can mm. seat thousands. So the, I was there for a week. I forget what year, 2009 or something. And it was the week leading up to Pentecost. The beginning of the week, there were 200 of us. Just the main part of the church was open. Mm -hmm. But as we got closer to Pentecost, more and more people showed up. And as they showed up, these walls, like big garage doors, they look like walls, but then suddenly you hear them moving with electric motor. And there's a whole new section of the chapel that's open. Mm -hmm. And they're seating for the people who have come since yesterday. And so they... They have a mission of reconciliation, a mission of welcome, created these chants which are accessible. They're just a few measures long. They're repeated for about five minutes or so. Easy to sing, but they're in four parts. So there's harmony, they're interesting. And for accompaniment, they just use an electric keyboard, which is some very gentle arpeggiated chords under it. Mm -hmm. So that kind of chanting is something that is pretty common these days in the Episcopal Church, and doing Teze liturgies is something that lots of places do, and it's just modeling a service on what they do at Teze with those chants. Um, So our musician accompanies them on our electric keyboard, and we sit up near the high altar, which is like in our space, like a separate space, and Mm -hmm. there are pews facing each other, and we have low lights. 
icons, candles. We have a large Teze cross, which is a particular cross they use in the Teze community. And for once a month, once a month we spend an hour chanting, having some silence, reading scripture, some prayers. Um, back to your experience in Taze, what yeah. is that like worshiping with thousands of people, though? Uh, well, so that's a great question. And so it began, and it was just a, a few hundred. And I thought, this is fantastic. Because mm -hmm. I am by nature an introvert. I have no trouble with contemplative silence for experience, extended <laughs> periods of time. So I was just having a wonderful, holy time. And then by the day of Pentecost, when it's 2,500 people, wow. and that's not the biggest crowd they get, but it was you know yeah. much bigger than when we started. It was so noisy and chaotic. Mm -hmm. um, I, I loved Tizay because they walk around outside the chapels you walk up to with signs in all languages, not all, but multiple languages saying silence. You're supposed to be quiet even outside. Mm -hmm. Well, on Pentecost, forget it. It was noise <laughs> everywhere. And so literally I am sitting there the day of Pentecost uh -huh. that morning thinking, why can't these people be quiet? They are intruding on my silence. But then I realized, you know, oh, but listen to the singing. Oh, and these people are from all over the world. Mm -hmm. And then when we started singing Vene Sancta Spiritus, Come mm -hmm. Holy Spirit, and we're singing, we're singing with all these people from all over the world. Of course, the Pentecost story is that the Spirit descends and the apostles start speaking in languages that are not their own. And so the people suddenly realize, wait a minute, I'm hearing the gospel proclaimed in my own language. Mm -hmm. And so it's about multiple languages, about understanding, about that, you know, not having the barrier of language between us. And so what began as this time of, oh, they are intruding on my contemplative silence, flipped into, this is so profound to be here with people from all over the world on the day of Pentecost in all of its noise and messiness. And, you know, because also in the Pentecost story is the wind comes and it's roaring. Yeah. <laughs> so it, Pentecost is not a gentle, quiet experience. No. And I feel like that Pentecost, I live some of that experience with the profound nature of a diverse group of people coming together to worship God in their own languages. Yeah. That sounds like a transformative experience. Yeah. Yeah. Just... Life-altering. And taught me a lesson about my own expectations and just sort of calming down when things don't go as I might want and realizing there still can be a way to worship God in that for me. Yeah, that God sort of just goes with the flow. Right, and God can tame my, you know, fussiness about this. is not how it's supposed to be. Yes, <laughs> and then he's like, calm down. It's all right. good. Right, Definitely. Um, you recently went on sabbatical. I did. What was what a what's a sabbatical? <laughs> We're gonna start there. Good question. Good question. So sabbatical from the same root as Sabbath, mm -hmm. which is a period of rest, restoration, of holy endeavors. It's not just, you know, a vacation. So a Sabbath for clergy comes somewhere, you know, five, seven years, as a time to get a block of time for some rest and renewal. Mm -hmm. but also for some kind of project so that you're doing some kind of studying or you're learning something or you're traveling to a site that somehow is related to the work you're doing in the parish you serve. For me, a sabbatical was certainly some time for some rest because it had been seven years of hard work in the parish I serve and I was ready for some rest. Mm -hmm. But my, sab my sabbatical project was on 
white supremacy, racial reconciliation. And that was because both of my own interests, but the parish I serve, which is in Mount Hope section of Providence, is a very diverse neighborhood. We are right on Hope Street, which is in the heart of the section of the neighborhood that is predominantly white, middle class. But up at the top of the hill along Camp Street is the historic African-American neighborhood of Providence, a neighborhood that because of societal pressures and gentrification and the race riots of the 19th century has been diminished and squeezed and pushed. And now, instead of being across a whole section of that hill on the east side from Benefit Street all the way up to Camp Street, now is just the few blocks along Camp Street. Mm-hmm. And that community is now expen- experiencing gentrification and being priced out of their homes or losing their homes outright for various reasons. So in the neighborhood of our parish, it just is really important for us to be doing this work. And, and in fact, racial reconciliation work is happening in the neighborhood through non through it's really a coalition of people who come together from nonprofits, from churches, from the Jewish temples, residents, and they're all working together trying to build relationships across the divide of fault. The default, I can't talk. The fault line or the divide of race. Um, and this even began further back from us because after uh, the situation in Ferguson several years ago, Ferguson, Missouri, people in the parish were saying, all right, what can we do? We've got to do something. And so that I set out then an agenda. We're going to start working around white privilege Mm -hmm. and start educating ourselves. Um, In 2016, I think, the Center for Reconciliation, which is a group that is working towards racial reconciliation and, and was born out of the diocese, put forward a curriculum based on James Cone's book, The Cross and the Lynching Tree, which, Mm -hmm. which is, it's, a difficult book to read, but a critical book for people who are white to read because it talks about, in real honest terms, the history of lynching, of white supremacy in this country. And the CFR had a curriculum that went along with that, so there were discussion questions. And so we did that curriculum. And that curriculum actually changed the lives of some people in the parish in significant ways and really launched us on taking seriously this work of racial reconciliation. So just all that came together and it seemed logical for me during sabbatical time to do some studying and some work in that area. And while I was away, the parish read some books and did some work of its own. The vestry created a plan for moving forward to create a larger plan for the whole parish for the next several years on racial reconciliation. Mm -hmm. And they did all that while I was on sabbatical doing my project. Mm -hmm. So I also love the fact that it was the whole parish, me and people who were you know, behind doing the work of being the parish, were together doing this work. The specific things I did was I, it started by I've got this stack of books that I never have time to read mm-hmm. about white supremacy and race and racial reconciliation. And so I wanted to get through as many of those books as I could. So I had a reading list for myself. But then I also wanted to visit particular sites. And the one I most wanted to visit was to go to Montgomery, Alabama. Mm-hmm. And of course, that that city is at the heart of the beginnings of the civil rights movement. The Montgomery bus boycott happened there. The march from Selma ended there with Dr. King. And from that history has come the Equal Justice Initiative, which is a, a group of people. It was begun by Brian Stevenson, and they're really working at mass incarceration and trying to help get people defense in prison who don't have it, people on death row. 
And they've also founded a museum. Mm-hmm. And that museum uh, is amazing because it, I mean, it's affectionately, affection is not the right word, but commonly called the lynching museum. But what the museum really does is it, it lays out a timeline from slave, slavery and the beginnings of the slave trade, which, of course, Alabama was in the center of that slave trade, right through to mass incarceration and just making the connection that slavery is not ended. Mm-hmm. It has been changed. And then they have a memorial. And the memorial is one of the most difficult and most important places I have ever been in my life. Because the memorial across the city is to all the people who were lynched that we know by name. And that's over 4,000 people. And the memorial has metal, it's hard to describe them. It has um, sort of metal rectangles that hang from the ceiling by a metal rod. Mm. And they're sort of a bronze color. And engraved on those are county names of various states and then the known names of the people who were lynched with the date, if it's known. Mm. And those are hanging. It starts out at ground level, but as you walk, the floor drops. And suddenly you're walking under, and you suddenly realize, oh, these monuments that are hanging down are like people hanging from trees. I mean, it is so poignant and so horrific. And then in the center of the memorial, they have a a plastic, it's like plexiglass, clear container, and that contains soil samples from all the counties where there were lynchings. Mm. And then outside, they have replica monuments because what they want is for every county that had lynchings to take their monument and have it somewhere as a memorial in the place where these happened Mm. some counties have taken them many have not and so they sit there outside the museum so i i had an amazing emotional response there i mean i was weeping Mm -hmm. and part of what i was weeping for was white churches complicity and silence around white supremacy and the horrific, sinful, evil acts that have been committed, if not by me or by us now, certainly in our name as white Christians. Mm-hmm. Because these lynchings happen and often they're done in the name of God, they're sport, they made, they made postcards out of them that they sold. I mean, yeah. it was horrific. Mm-hmm. So that was one of the most important things, but I'd say one of the hardest things I've done. Mm-hmm. I just sort of sat in the middle for a long time, weeping and praying. And it, it's not, you went to Montgomery, Alabama, but it's not to say that um, <coughs> New England churches are like clean of all of that sort no. of systematic no. racism at all. We just want to say that. Right. I mean, Rhode Island was at the heart of the slave trade. Yeah. In shipping, Rhode Island had slavery. Slaves built some Rhode Island churches. Money from the slave trade built Rhode Island, some Rhode Island churches. No, we were in the heart of it. Mm-hmm. And part of the mission of the Center for Reconciliation is learning that history and naming that history and as a response to that history. I'm going to ask you a hard question. Okay. How do we, as churches who are so rooted in that, own that fact and make ourselves accountable for our history? 
Uh, I think that's a, a great question and a question I thought a lot about um, and a question I have an answer for. <laughs> great. Oh, good. I thought you were going to be like, well, we're just going to sit here in silence for 20 minutes and figure it out. Nope. No danger. You're great. going to have more words for me. Perfect. <laughs> uh, so I think part of part of the reality in this country, which I think includes Rhode Island, is if you're white, you don't have to pay attention to this mm-hmm. because you're not living the reality of racial oppression moment by moment. And I think for those of us who are white and for white church, and that includes the Episcopal church, mm-hmm. we are complicit in silence. Mm. We are complicit in ignoring history. Because part of the reading I was doing, I was reading several books which had things about our history as a country which I have never heard before mm. and are not part of standard curriculum when you're talking learning U.S. history. Mm. Uh, one, of the, one of the transformative stories I have from the parish I serve do, when we did the curriculum of the cross and lynching tree was someone who's a history professor and how that course changed how he taught undergraduate history. Mm because of everything that was missing from what was in the books that many people are reading. And so I think the first thing is for us to get out of maintaining that silence by learning our history as a nation, as a state, as a diocese, and by telling that story. Mm-hmm. As awful as it may be, as hard as it might be for us to hear, I know often it makes us feel guilty, but I think we still have to do it. Because I think there, there's no hope for racial reconciliation until we learn our history and we name our history. And only then can we begin to think about how do we repent of that history and how do we make restoration or reparation for that history. And only then can we begin to think about engaging people of color in talking about re- reconciliation. Because yeah, that definitely. is our work to do as people who are white. And we even are complicit just in the fact that in Rhode Island, we had some churches closed, and a lot of them were predominantly ethnically diverse people of congregations. Color. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And how is it that we can support those churches mm-hmm. without coming in? Well, well. Sorry, I'm figuring out how to phrase this well. Mm. Um, how do we? engage with churches Mm -hmm. who are culturally diverse Mm -hmm. and work with them in a way that acknowledges the special cultures that are in those churches Mm -hmm. without erasing them and coming in with this is how this needs to be done sort of attitudes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it takes intentionality and care. It takes listening to people. It takes building consensus. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Definitely. So many layered conversations. And I... No, go ahead. Absolutely. So many layered conversations. And, you know, part of what I was thinking about was I know several people in this diocese who were part of Church of Our Savior, which was Mm -hmm. at University Heights, which the city in the 1960s bulldozed that African-American neighborhood to build Mm -hmm. a shopping center. And called it Urban Renewal. And they built also some apartments there called University Heights. Mm -hmm. Um, And I know from one family in the neighborhood, their house was taken by the city for that building project. And they were promised an apartment in University Heights. This is a family of color. Mm -hmm. They never got an apartment. Mm -hmm. 
Church of Our Savior was forced to close, was bulldozed. They were moved, that community was told they would move to the cathedral, mm-hmm. but they couldn't worship in the nave with the white congregation. They had to worship in the chapel. Mm. This is the 1960s in wow. Rhode Island. And there are people still alive who were associated with that parish who tell that story and still carry, you can hear it as they talk about it. Um, th- this summer, one of the folks who's not a parishioner at Redeemer came on a Sunday and a person who is at Redeemer but was part of that congregation, both were talking with me about it. And you can still, after these decades, hear the pain of that displacement mm-hmm. and of how they were treated by the diocese. Yeah, I did not know that. I, Most people no. don't, which is why I get distracted because I thought, I've got to figure a way to tell the story. Because <laughs> my mission is that the Church of Our Savior story will be known because we've got to contend with that. We still have yeah. people in this diocese who were hurt by that. And I think that there are a lot of churches that have closed that people have a similar story right. like that, which is sad because we think, oh, we're in New England. Right. We are in this sort of bubble at times and it's like no we also have work to do well we do because now as a diocese we have lost our historically african-american congregations church of the epiphany in elmwood closed Mm -hmm. before that christ church on eddy street closed those were historic african-american congregations and they're gone Mm -hmm. definitely along with church of our savior um and do you think so reconciliation is a a big pillar of the Episcopal Church. Yes. Correct. Do you think because that is something that we are so rooted in that we are at a particular spot to work on this sort of racial reconciliation within ourselves? I do. I do. And in fact, I just had this conversation with someone because I think the last few years there has been growing awareness for white people in this country about where we are around race. Mm -hmm. And there's been growing awareness and more and more are people hearing about the parts of our history as a nation that have not been well known. And so I just think that this is a moment for us to be bold and to act because I think there is increasingly a movement in among white folks in our nation to be addressing this head on, to be doing some real work. And as the church, I mean, the mission of of the church is to be working for reconciliation. Is that really? Yeah, that's what that's what it says in the catechism. Wow. <laughs> so look at that. I will. I'm gonna have to read my catechism. <laughs> you you should page eight fifty five. <laughs> Please read it. Um, <laughs> and of course, our presiding bishop Michael Curry uh-huh. has, and general convention has also called on us to have as a priority the mm-hmm. work of racial reconciliation. So I think this is a time for us to, to seize this work mm-hmm. and to take seriously this work, as hard as it is. And it isn't the responsibility of those historically black congregations no. to educate. No. It is not. No. We're just going to say that. No. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> no, my feeling is it's not the responsibility of people of color to educate white people. Mm-hmm. And I know people of color, both you know parishioners and also friends of mine, who would say clearly not my job, do your work. And so yes. I think it is the job of white church to educate itself and to, and to do that hard work that is necessary for real reconciliation to happen. And that's our job mm-hmm. as you know, white Episcopalians to be doing that work. Yes. Um, 
So the title of your episode is called Welcoming Beyond the Red Door. Yes. What, and for those of people who may not know, the Red Door is sort of like the Episcopal stamp, I would say, that a lot of Episcopal churches a have do. red doors. Many churches have I red doors of I all denominations. But... <laughs> um, but for some reason, the Episcopal yeah. Church, I feel like, has sort of claimed it's this pretty as, common. Their, yeah. as their own. Um, what does that mean to you? to welcome beyond this sort of symbol of the Episcopal Church? I think it means we have to have real intentionality. Mm-hmm. Because I think it, it it's tempting to say, we're going to be welcoming. Everyone's welcome. Come on in. That's what all our signs say. And that's what all our signs say. But to really do that work is more than just saying, okay, everything goes here. And it, and it also requires sort of a deeper work. And I think particularly a work that pays attention to power and to privilege. Hence the quote I started with. Mm-hmm. Because it's easy for me as a white person to say everyone's welcome. But if I don't understand how I benefit from privilege, if I don't understand my own racism, my own, I'm, I identify as male, I'm a cis man, so my own sexism, mm-hmm. If I don't, if I'm not in touch with those privileges and sort of the worldview that I have constructed based on those, then it's going to be really hard for me to relate with in a meaningful way that is not potentially hurtful people of color, mm-hmm. people who identify as women. And so I think it's just really important for us to be clear that it requires us to have done that kind of work, which is, you know, what, what we're talking about in terms of the work on racial reconciliation. Uh, I can also tell you that. Um, being queer, I also know that throughout the course of my day, including in the church, there are just these things that happen which are hurtful to me, which are not intentional, which people would not even know that they necessarily have done, but are real for me. And I think those are the things we need to pay attention to. And if you're not paying attention to those things, it's going to be really hard to be a really welcoming community because people are going to be hurt. People will not know they're hurting others and it's going to get really complicated. Yeah. Microaggressions Microaggressions. Are real. They are real. No. They are absolutely. real. Absolutely. And it needs to come from a place of understanding that mm-hmm. I do not mean to hurt you, right. but I may. Right. And it's because I'm still learning exactly. who I am. I think that's exactly right. But then the other side of it is the one who has done that also has to take seriously that they have hurt the other person. Yes. I mean, it's a both and definitely and i think having an intentional way of identifying and talking about those things is critical if you're going to build a really welcoming community yeah and how if i were to give you all the money in the world (laughs) and all the time in the world to restructure the episcopal church in that sort of way how what would be like your first steps i have no (laughs) idea (laughs) (laughs) well because i mean it's an interesting question because um the the first thought that comes to mind has nothing to do with money but the Mm -hmm. first thought comes to mind to for me is it's about relationality Mm -hmm. and it's not about institution building what's the difference to you 
Well, the, the difference is that when we're talking about relationality, we're talking about people who know one another, who understand, as in my quote, that mm -hmm. what binds us together is more important than what divides us, so that we are we are one in Jesus. That's our foundation. We can trust that and we can rest in that. And then from that, we build a relationship where we can speak honestly to one another. And so I, I can say, hey, Ivy, sorry, but when you said that, here's what I heard and here's how I felt. And you can say, oh, sorry. And then we talk about that. That's based on a level of trust and a commitment to being together, that we need to stay in relationship. And so we're going to figure out how we're going to make this work. Mm -hmm. Institutions are about all sorts of other things. And often people don't know one another and there aren't those relationships. And so for me, that's a much more complicated question. And I, I don't have an answer for that. And if, you know, okay. I think if any of us did, we'd be restructuring the church more dramatically. But I think it's a, that's a vexing question. Yeah. But what I'm clear is that we're called into relationships and certainly in in parishes it's possible to build those kinds of connections and those kinds of relationships. Definitely. It's how we act the way that we talk and right. making sure that those work with each other. Right. Have I missed anything? Is there anything that you're like, we have to talk about this? <laughs> Oh, well, there, there's so much there's more. There's so much, so much more. <laughs> but I don't know. Is that is that a place to leave it for now? Yes, that's absolutely a wonderful place to leave it. Um, if I wanted to see you on a Sunday morning, where could I do that? You could do that at the Church of the Redeemer mm -hmm. at 655 Hope Street in Providence, where we have Sunday celebrations of the Eucharist at 8 a.m. and 10 a.m. and a fabulous discussion group between um, mm -hmm. people of all ages where we talk about the lessons and the, the scripture readings for the Sunday and theological things and world events and things happening in our lives as they relate to to Jesus and scripture and yeah it's a great time so and then we have our monthly Teze services on the fourth Sunday at 5 p.m. Wonderful and I know you talked about the Center for Reconciliation a little yeah. bit uh, if that's something that I'm super inspired by, how can I get involved with that? Well, so there are a few ways. There's the Center for Reconciliation as a website, mm -hmm. Facebook page. Well, thank you, Patrick, so much for being here today. You're welcome. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for the conversation, Ivy. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to Tea Time Theology. We would like to thank our sponsor, the Episcopal Diocese of Rhode Island, and the Right Reverend Nicholas Nisley, as well as our guests today. You can follow us at Tea Time Theology on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. This season of Tea Time Theology is hosted and organized by Ivy Swinsky. Our music is mixed and performed by Mo Ray Akande. The podcast is recorded and edited by me, Taylor Wilkie. Sing a song full of the faith that the dark past has taught us. Sing a song full of the hope that the present has brought. See you